Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to The Postscript. Hi, welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series, uh, where we have conversations with pastors from the Living Faith Fellowship, instructors from the Bible School, about uh, doctrinal topics, about ministry life. Uh, this week, I have uh, my first repeat guest on the show, uh, Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church in Blue Springs, uh, a neighbor of, of ours and a, and a sister church of ours. And we're going to be having a conversation about Paul and, uh, and the pastoral epistles specifically, uh, about the, the uh, structure of the church, about what Christ intends for the mission to be, and, and what that looks like uh, in the everyday life of, of believers. And so I'm going to turn over to, to Pastor Alan. How are you, man? Hey, doing good. Glad good to, to be you. back. Yeah, praise the Lord. Um, so, Pastor, you teach, generally teach, the uh, pastoral epistles courses in, in Living Faith Bible Institute, and that covers so much content. There's so much uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, so much to be learned in those, in those books. Uh, but, the, but the first thing I want to address is more about Paul, about the Apostle Paul. It, it seems as though uh, it's been become particularly popular to undermine the writings of the uh, Apostle Paul and kind of d to separate him as an enigma among the uh, the biblical writers, can you can you talk about that at all? What the the motivation of that might be and why that's so dangerous? Well, so I think I think the Apostle Paul has always been under attack. I think mm. he's always been under attack, and throughout church history and uh, throughout modern times in Christianity. Now, maybe we should expect that. I think uh, in terms of biblical typology, that's what you would expect because he's, he is the prototype. He is, uh, he is exhibit A for true biblical Christianity. Hmm. So he, I will say he's always been under attack, but the fad, the, f the theological fad by which he has been under attack, uh, you know, consistently has to change over time. Because it's never successful, and so mm. it so it will you know it constantly changes. So, um, the topic of Paul has been popular in our wings of evangelicaldom for the last ten years or so, mm. but at the same time, they have undermined really what Paul's true teachings are in order to bring it back to an Old Testament and a and a transitional standpoint. Mm. And so he I mean he's been under attack recently, but just in a different way. What are the what do you think the motivations are in the most recent attacks? Um what are what are the intentions of those scholars? So I don't think the scholars have any evil intentions, but the problem is if 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 you are not going to rightly divide your Bible so I'm speaking on a scholar level. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, if you're not going to walk in the Spirit, you can be used as an agent of the devil anytime. Right. Uh, just like in the movie The Matrix, right? I mean, anybody could be an agent. You're just going to be taken over unless mm -hmm. they're out of that system. And by the same token, on the scholarly level, Anyone who is not going to really submit to biblical authority and they do not rightly divide the Word of God, then they can be used as an agent mm -hmm. uh, for Satan to do his dirty work 
to try and confuse humanity on what it means to be born again, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, whether or not there's an eternal punishment. Right. I mean, that's a big thing it is. in evangelicaldom. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, also recently, the no hell or a universal approach to salvation. And so someone's not going to submit to biblical authority and rightly divide the Bible, then they are available to be used as an agent. So I don't know that the scholars in question necessarily have an e- would say they have an evil motive in their sure, heart. Sure. I, they just don't know what they're doing. So then in terms of that, Satan certainly does, and he's got a plan. And I, I think the danger of, of Paul is that he, in many regards, gives uh, legs to the church uh, that Christ didn't provide in his teachings. And so he becomes absolutely necessary um, for us to, to function and to even understand our salvation. So then I guess that leads me to the, to the ecclesiastical question. So what is the church? And, uh, and what were, you know, what is it that Paul really wanted us to know about the structure and the organization of the church and why it's necessary? Okay. Well, let me, let me springboard off of that phrase that you used. I think we need to run on the legs that Paul gave us because what Paul talks about at the end of his ministry is the last days of the church. What should we be watching out for? We should be watching out for false teaching, Mm -hmm. for false teachers. Uh, So we should be watching out for the exactly the, you know, the topic that we're taking up today. Mm -hmm. So much better than taking up uh, topics of prophecy, I think, because that's not where Paul leaves us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in, we are in the last times and the last days. And Paul had very specific warnings about what was going on and uh, what was going to happen, his, his life being that typology, that pattern of right. what we could expect in our own Christian experience, and I'll say even in church history. So, uh, you know, Christ, uh, if the question is, let's start with the church, yeah. then Christ preempts Paul. Uh, some people say that the birth of the church is Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And I say no, because that's not the first place that the word is used. <laughs> Jesus uses the word first. Right. And the word means to be a call a called out, but it was specifically a called out assembly where God, as he's going to move now through this transitional time from Israel to the church, God adopts a Greek idea. Hmm. And God himself says, Okay, you see what they're doing? You know, this is what I've intended all along. Right. And so he brings back into the situation this term church, ecclesia. I will say it started in Matthew 10 because that is where Jesus called out his 12. Certainly it was in existence in Matthew 18 Mm. because he talks about, okay, you know, if they won't listen to you, go tell it to the church. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then it's empowered in Acts chapter 2. That's not where it was born, but that was where it was empowered. We got the power that we need in this dispensation. And then that thing which had been a mystery 
Okay, so first off, the church was a mystery. Right. Why? In order for all of the offers up to that point to be legitimate, so it had to be a mystery. So Christ could talk about the church and and even, in effect, say, look, you guys are the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, without it being revealed what the church was in Ephesians 3 through 5, yeah. so, so Paul explains the mystery of the church, ties it all together, and says, oh, you know what? That was God's eternal purpose all along, was to get us to this. But it was right. a mystery hidden until God revealed it to me so that all the other offers would be legitimate. And but now they've been rejected. So Jerusalem Jews reject, Judean Jews reject, Jews in the dispersion reject. Mm-hmm. And now Paul goes first to the Jews, but then he then he goes to Gentiles, and and now God reveals to him and he sees, oh, church, it's this one body. There's no distinction here anymore. The body of Christ is this whole separate idea now in this dispensation. And so, you know, you take the word church from what the Greek city-states were doing, and it was an assembly of their citizens, and they could vote on the rules and the laws and, and who was elected and how things were going to be done. Mm. And so there is the body of Christ getting ready to function in society. And so as you go through the book of Acts, you see that it is set up with officers and with ordinances as to its structure. So it has, you know, two officers, uh, uh, pastors and deacons, and two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that this is the basis by which we operate from to affect our society. And that will happen until Christ comes back and takes us out. So, uh, so just to kind of summarize that, so basically what you're saying is that that Christ set some basic parameters, uh, and he used he used Greek thought to even help set those parameters. That you are called out, and so he creates a structure for gathering and being together uh, in, with one calling. But then, as as time unfolds, the opportunity was extended for the Jews to kind of fill what that was supposed to mean. In other words, if they would have received Christ, if they would have received the Messiah. Then, then the actualization of the church would have been fulfilled through them. But, but upon the rejection, it was up to Paul and the inspiration that God gave Paul uh, to establish what the framework of the church would be. And it was particularly Greek in nature because he was called to the Gentiles. Is, is, am I ca- well, catching if, that right? So if or? you think about the tr- transition, mm-hmm. If the Old Testament is completed and 400 years later, the, a, a new door is being opened in Matthew. So a new door is being opened, and now Christ comes in and he's offering himself as the king, and he's offering kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, because he's the king. So that's being offered. And then it's rejected, and then he's crucified. And yet, from the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And God answers that prayer because all the way through to Acts chapter 7, here's Stephen. And they can't can't answer Stephen. I mean, ever before Paul, they can't answer Stephen and what he's saying. And so he gets, you know, one final chance to 
to preach to the group, and uh, it uh, you know they had a rock festival that day, and he he was killed. But, you know, God is so gracious. I mean, it's an amazing thing. The whole book of Acts is a transition, not just through yeah, chapter right. 7, sure. because now you have, okay, Jerusalem Jews have rejected it. Judean Jews have rejected it. Paul is now sent first to the Jew in the synagogues in the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and consistently, consistently, where they reject the message, then he takes it to the Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, wholesale. Uh, so the new covenant is for them. And they don't have to be circumcised because this is a covenant based on grace through faith. Now, none of the prison epistles are written until he's in prison. They all fall after Acts chapter 28, which includes the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, mm. Philippians, Colossians. Which are some of those practical writings in terms of which character the, and... What we, what you know? What our heart should be turned and, to the inner and man. the Christian church epistles that define what the church is. Yeah. So you go from a first mention by Christ to the full mention there. I will say in Ephesians three to five, uh, and certainly echoed in Colossians because it's so important. So you've got now you now oh this is what the church is, and was always what God always intended to do. But it 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 needed to be a legitimate a legitimate offer up until that point. Mm-hmm. So, so after Acts chapter twenty eight, where the Jews in Rome come to him, and they say, you know, nobody from Jerusalem has come here to prejudice us us against you. I mean, you got here first. I don't know how that happened. You spent. Uh, you know, two years in Caesarea in jail, you were shipwrecked on the way. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, you got here first. So mm. let's listen to you. Mm. And so he spoke to them. And, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't the same type of vociferous rejection, but it was not an acceptance. Right. And uh, so he had freedom then for the time that he was under house arrest and after he got out of that first imprisonment. Mm-hmm. He had the, and I think he learned some things there because all the way through Acts chapter 22, he is bringing an offering to Jerusalem. And this is the Apostle Paul. Mm. And this is after the crucifixion of Christ. But the temple still stood in their 40 years of of, uh, testing, by which God is kind of grandfathering in that old generation. Mm-hmm. So he's not unfair. It's not an overnight change. Right. And even Paul goes to Jerusalem to make an offering uh, to his people. And uh, before that moment, when he can make that offering, God says, no, hold, time out. I'm not even, I'm not going to, okay, if you're not done, I am. <laughs> I'm not going to let you get that far. And uh, I'm going to give you to the Romans right now and uh, let them take care of you because uh, a whole different thing is going to go on. Wow. Man, that's such a different uh, painting than than what I've heard before in terms of the transition and how that's usually taught. Yeah. Well, N.T. Wright has a new perspective on Paul. This is just <laughs> the old one that yeah, <laughs> nobody yeah. ever gets back to. Yeah. And so, so what we have in Acts, just to recap, is 
this there is a transition taking place. And the transition is necessary because God's grace and his mercy is so big. And so the offer continues to extend to the Jewish people over and over and over again. Paul is in the synagogues in every city, even in, in Gentile regions. The first place he goes is the synagogue to preach because there's a constant um, offering as the, as the train pulls from the station, if you will. And uh, until, until the train has finally pulled away and it's off in the running, it's on a different set of tracks than uh, it would have been otherwise. And so it's at that moment um, I guess maybe maybe this is where I start asking you specifically about the the structure of the church. Uh, you mentioned ordinances. You m- mentioned offices. Um, man, even today, uh, we fail to take the, the the instruction in terms of what a pastor should be. Literally, uh, the, there's so many churches and so many people um, who who want to abuse. Um, the character qualities and the qualifications of even what a pastor should be. And so, so we have, you know, um, we have female pastors and we have, uh, every t- every type of, of person wanting a, a crack at church leadership. And, and there's all these erosions that are taking place again, perhaps that, you know, they've, t- maybe you can give us some insight in terms of how they've always taken place, how there's always been an attack against yeah, that position. And I would say, you know, that the erosion has always been away from biblical authority and a submission to that. Mm-hmm. So I would say I am a biblicist, and perhaps that makes me different from some fundamentalists in this respect. Okay. Even in our independent fundamental Baptist Christianity, we are nevertheless good Romans, and we, we tend to view things, therefore, from a a very uh, linear-brained Roman mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's very much, uh, it has to make sense to us mm-hmm. because the Greeks seek after wisdom. Right. So uh, for the Greeks, the highest thing is to be able to rationalize it. So it's human reason is put at the center. As long as it is reasonable— and I think the trap that we fell into that led to that transition from what I would call the Philadelphian age of the church to Laodicea, mm-hmm. Laodicean age, mm-hmm. is that, you know, we're really blind and we don't know it. Right. And what we did was we substituted the way we could reason about things in the Bible for actually what I would say a biblicist, a biblical mindset. And so what had happened was, um, what had happened was we have, we have in our mind the way God has to do it. And so what Mm. we've done is we have convictionalized things instead of principalizing things. Mm. So, so I'm all with you in terms of, okay, we need to approach the Bible literally, I will say the problem is many times we have not taken that far enough. We have taken it as far as our as what our reason allows, how we can rationalize and what is reasonable to us. And we've not taken it to the level of a true submission, I will say, to biblical authority. And we jump from, uh, we, we take Scripture and we jump immediately to convictionalizing it. 
mm-hmm. instead of principalizing it. Since we do not principalize it, then we don't really live in the biblical fashion that I will say that we should and that we could. Okay, so just so we have a better understanding, if you define convictionalize. So when you're when you're describing our contemporary Christianity in terms of conv- convictionalizing, what does that mean? You dive a little deeper there, and exp- and then also explain principalizing a little deeper as well. Yeah. So convictionalizing. Is that a word you made up, by the way? Is that, or is that, can we find that in the dictionary? I doubt it. You're, you're famous for making up words, so I just want to know. Yeah, no, I think I've, I, I don't remember hearing it before. Okay. In fact, you probably made it up just this moment. I might have coined it as we <laughs> okay. are speaking. Okay, okay. So then define that for us. So I'll, I'll define that because uh, I was just uh, watching a preacher uh, this last week. Mm-hmm. as he was preaching through a sermon. And it hearkened me back to my IFB, in Independent Fundamental Baptist, where the MOG, the, the man of God, got yeah, up yeah, yeah. and he preached. And, you know, I went to youth camp one year. I think I was probably a sophomore in high school. And um, they they the speaker told us he was able to say with certainty how long long was and how short short was. So in other words, how long your hair could be before it was too long. Mm. And how Which is a problem on this comes up a lot on this show. Short your skirt could be before right. it was too short. Mm. And so the the MOG that I was watching said he had figured it all out. Okay, so he's Greek, wisdom, totally Roman in his approach. He's mm. convictionalizing the scripture instead of principalizing it. He right. has it figured out. Um, a woman's hair down, a, a man's hair up, mm. a woman's skirt down, a man's pants are cut up. Oh, my gosh. Now, you understand he's saying this. At the same moment, he has a piece of cloth hung from his neck with an arrow pointing to his genitals. Right. Who invented that? Right. Did You know, this is a hard thing about a podcast. I don't know how long to wait before the laughter dies down. So he's standing there. Why, why do we do this? So that's so. Why do we do this? So is that the is that Babylonish garment? I don't understand. He's standing there. He doesn't even have a suit coat buttoned. He has an arrow pointing to his private parts, and he is saying he knows exactly how long the skirt has to be and sure. how short the hair has to so, be. Now that's convictionalizing. So you mm-hmm. would say that's a matter of conviction. He's prayed about it. God's shown him. And actually the theme of his message at that point was why he does not allow the women in his church to wear culottes. That's how bad it gets. Yeah. So what, so what you're saying is in absence of principles that should drive us as a church, uh, our predilection is always going to be to invent our own rules and our own boundaries and our own perspectives uh, because we don't understand the liberty of uh, 
of understanding God's word. If if you're not going to submit to the principles first, your convictions are going to be wrong. Wow. So so in in terms of uh, the principles of Scripture, uh, maybe present us with some of the most important principles that Paul teaches, or even you know the doctrines associated with those principles. Uh, particular as it regards the relationship between the universal church, right, the 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 body at large, versus the the uh, the more micro body, right, the local church. He speaks about both with regularity. Um, can you just briefly differentiate between the two, and why is that important in our in our understanding of the faith? Yeah. So let me let me, let me tie together maybe this idea of uh, principalizing versus convictionalizing. Okay. And, um, you know, why that's important where it comes to the practice of the church and the understanding of Christians. Sometimes people ask, why is it that we do things the way we should do? And, you know, they'll get a new idea from Francis Chan or somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we ought to do away with the <clears throat> PBD church, the program-based design. We should go back to something else maybe deeper in the book of Acts, and we should just be in houses, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be institutionalized in any way. Uh, after all, why do we do what we do? Well, we do most of what we do because that's what they did in the synagogue, and the synagogue had a president. We have a pastor, and the synagogue had worship along the same lines that we do, and they had praise, and they had prayer, and they mm-hmm. had scripture reading and exposition, and they ha- and that's why we do what we do. But a rabbi understood that you, ha- if unless you're going to be a Pharisee mm-hmm. and thought you had everything measured, right. you took the Old Testament in the context you were in, which was not the temple at Jerusalem, mm. but but God had scattered you. You now had to principalize things in terms of practical application. So Paul does that same thing. The church is important to him because it is the body of Christ. He definitely gives a literal structure to it Mm -hmm. that is similar to and patterned after the president and elder system within the synagogue. Right. So you have a pastor or pastors and you have deacons. And then... He understands, you know, there are two ordinances here that Christ gave us. Obviously, we baptize. That's right there in the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. But also, he says, Jesus showed to me. I didn't rely on the other um, apostles and gospel writers for this. Jesus showed me what we must do until he returns in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper Mm. and the communion that, that unites us together as one body. And those things were important to Paul. So there, there is a literal structure to that. At the same time, there has to be a principalized application in, uh, in the way that we uh, take what is written and put it in application in yeah, our day. They had how it's administered in terms of, of daily function. So then that leads us to, you know, again, there's these kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum that you described is this, this you know, the contemporary postmodern desire for churches to be incredibly organic and um, to the point where it begins to affect maybe the structural elements, the things that, that are the boundaries. 
And then on the other end, you've got so much structure that it's been con- the church has been convictionalized, and you have some sort of authoritarian, arbitrary, authoritarian rule that looks like the Pharisees ruling from this side, and there's nothing left in between. And so, um, you know, I'd ask in terms of, of Paul's teachings and, and, the, and the amount of flexibility that he gives uh, in, in, in what he leaves us with, what are some of those things that are flexible that pastors have liberty to to change and to mix up and to, I mean, I think that's a question I've often thought about. Uh, where where is the flexibility at in terms of our, our decision makings in, in, in ministry? So I, I'm not advocating necessarily for a middle ground. Okay, and that's that wouldn't be what I would propose. I I'm advocating for a biblical ground, mm-hmm. and it just so happens that God is not OCD like we are. Okay, and the biblical ground happens to be at no extreme. Mm-hmm. So um, God has given us that, and God does it in certain ways that will, in one sense, confound our reason so that we can't rely on our fleshly mind, mm-hmm. and we have to walk in the Spirit. Right. And in walking in the Spirit, we fulfill all those things that He has set out uh, as the boundaries and the things that much must be done. So mm-hmm. a couple of examples I would I would pull. Um, I, I went to Romania back in the day uh, three times. Mm-hmm. And in Romania, among the churches in the Baptist Union in Romania, at that time at least, the married women had to have a head covering. Right. And so I was asked— some of them had come to America and spent time with us. And so I was asked by them, well, why don't you have your women cover their head? After all, Paul says, and, you know, 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. chapter 11, and a woman, you know, needs to have her head covered. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Context is king. Yeah. And um, not only biblical context and put in terms of putting a verse within its chapter and a chapter within the book and then the book within the whole, mm-hmm. but also historical or cultural context. So so there were issues in Corinth we do not have here. Sure. But my reply to them was okay, we do not have our women cover their heads. You only have your married women cover their heads. Mm. And Paul says all women should cover their head. Okay, mm-hmm. we're wrong, but you're half wrong. <laughs> so, so that's an example of they had convictionalized something instead of principalizing it. Yeah, and and bringing bringing it in biblical context to what they were talking about because Paul doesn't write that to every church, and when he talks about it being a shame for a man to have long hair. Mm-hmm. He goes right on to say that um, we don't have any rule like that in the churches. Mm. Uh, he says within the context, judge within yourselves whether or not it is comely for a woman to pray without having her head covered. Well, mm. so that is the flexibility. It's built right, right in. If I'm going to be a biblicist, Mm-hmm. I have to live within that flexibility, and I have to judge within our. We have to judge within ourselves. Judge within our context, 
Is it is it a shame for a man to have long hair or a woman to have short? Well, I, I trow not. Uh, I don't I don't believe that it is. Mm-hmm. And the we I need to be submitted to biblical authority to principalize and not always have to convictionalize so that. I allow that liberty. Judge within yourselves whether or not this should be done or not. If we think about the pastoral epistles that mm-hmm. we were talking about, yeah. I just happened to pull up Titus chapter 1. Mm-hmm. And if I'm reading in, in Titus chapter 1, um, you know, what we would call the qualifications uh, for a person who should be a pastor or should be a deacon— and, you know, first off, there's some differences there between pastors and deacons. And I suppose you could argue, well, okay, but that's, you know, just two different offices. But then what you find is Paul says one thing in 1 Timothy 3 mm-hmm. and something else in Titus chapter 1. And it's it, it doesn't match mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were doing it, from our Greco-Roman mindset, it would have to match. We'd have to, and we'd force it. If we well, had. and so what we do to force it to match, if there are, you know, sixteen qualifications listed here and sixteen listed there, and eight of them are the same, we come up with twenty-four, and we say, right, that's what that is. Look, it, it's got to be just like that. Mm. Now that's convictionalizing, mm. and. On the other hand, if you contextualize so that you can principalize it, you understand Paul is writing in one place to an urban pastor in an urban church and to another place to a rural pastor setting up pastors in rural churches. Mm-hmm. And, there, and biblically, there are differences that are allowed. Hmm. But if I take, just to give a specific example, let's sure, say, yeah. since we're in Titus chapter 1, but let me, let's, let's say if I, let, let me take that third item, <clears throat> because this deals with all of us who have kids and mm-hmm. families sure. and children, and we're in the pastorate. Mm-hmm. Having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. So what am I going to extrapolate from that? What am, what am I going to infer from that? And I will say that you've not really submitted to biblical authority if you have said, well, I did a word study on this and a word study on that, and therefore this is what it means. This is what riot and unruly mean. Right. I say that if you understand that Paul is writing Titus in 65 AD, 66 AD, that's that's after the disease, BC, before Corona, mm-hmm. AD after the disease. <laughs> He's He is writing at a time where it has already started. And in Jerusalem, they are down with the sickness. Mm. And... It is a good thing. He sees now it is a good thing that God turned a corner in Acts 
21 and Acts 22, even though he was not ready to turn that corner yet. Right. Because there are a number of my Jewish background brethren whose whose children are in Judea, Jerusalem, and they've caught this patriotic sickness, this patriotic nationalistic sickness, and, uh, you know, they think they're doing what God wants. Now, if you're choosing a man to be a pastor and— Yet his children are involved against the government of Rome. Mm. That's, that ain't going to work out good for us. Mm. So I think when you put it in the broader biblical context and um, read the cross references in as to what they say and the content they bring historically, and when you bring the biblical context in dispensationally, Okay, now now I can understand that I need to have faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, but that doesn't mean that I that my uh, daughter may not you know that doesn't mean if somebody finds out that she's a cutter mm-hmm. that I'm disqualified from being a pastor. Yeah. So if she's but if you're going to convictionalize. You you jump to that, and I'm just saying that's not really a submission to biblical authority. That's not being a biblicist. Yeah, that's using uh, man-made measurements uh, to establish uh, how God wants to have things done, and uh, and so that I mean, in many regards, that leads to forms of legalism, I, and I even think that liber- liberalism is is its own unique form of legalism in many regards. Um, it has its own set of rules and standards by which it, it abides. And uh, and it, those things, in many regard, are the underlying war within the church, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, liberalism has its own intolerances, mm-hmm. things yeah. that it will not tolerate yeah. as, toler- as tolerant as it is. Mm-hmm. So, yes, absolutely. And within the church, when you don't allow that, that same liberty that the Bible itself gives us, so if you if you're not so submitted to biblical authority that you don't have to have your fleshly Greco-Roman mind come up with a conviction you're going to stand on mm-hmm. like that. You know, if you are willing and able. There may there are numbers of churches to back up to the second one mm-hmm. that that take that to mean that you cannot have a pastor who has ever been divorced and then remarried. A husband of one wife, And yeah. uh, there are numbers of churches that ha- have pastors who have, I mean, uh, you know, mostly Christianity mirrors our society. Sure. And mostly our society mirrors Rome of the first century. Mm-hmm. And so there are some churches that have pastors that have been divorced and remarried. Okay, well, I think that's their call. And so in... In that world, uh, the Paul is writing to Titus and says, "Husband of one wife." Well, that ki- that kind of meant exactly what it says: husband of one wife, no yeah. le- no women on the side. Yeah, uh, monogamy was not a given, right? Certainly in in that society. And but besides all that, they had they had uh, re- recognized relationships that mirror all the relationships that exist today. Uh, so, I mean, husband and one wife uh, primarily would have meant n- not not 
more than one wife at a time. Uh, but I'm not saying that there's not couldn't also be a secondary application that a church might look at and say, you know, you, you know, your kind of your family situation is really a complicated mess, and I don't know if you can pastor the church real well. Mm-hmm. That being the case, but there's I will say that uh, you know Paul is a rabbi principalizing the things that he's giving. Yes, we take it literally, but do we take it literal enough to the point of submitting to biblical authority, which includes within itself the flexibility, just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, judge within yourselves, is it comely? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's I mean that's blatant for us today right. as American Christians, because I don't know of any independent fundamental Baptist congregations uh, that they may not let their wear their women wear culottes, but they do not make them wear a head covering. Right. So, so with all of that in mind, Alan, and just in closing, what do we do to be better biblicists? What, what does the church do uh, to fight against um, legalism and convictionalizing uh, of God's word and measuring it against the opinions of men versus what He's actually saying in the book? So what we have to do, and to, to tie it all up in the in very positive fashion mm-hmm. in which it really is, mm-hmm. what we have to do is what we typically have not been good at doing, even as fundamentalist and evangelical Christians. We have to take the Word of God, but then we have to walk in the Spirit. Mm. We've got to take the Word of God, but we also have to walk in the Spirit. Now, let me apply that in a very practical way. If you walk in the Spirit, you won't have to second guess what you did. Mm. So if you take Scripture and then walk in the Spirit with it, Mm -hmm. then between you and the Holy Spirit, as God speaks through His Word and in concert with uh, the body of Christ, which is his, then a lot of things become clearer. Mm-hmm. And the things that um, are not clear, uh, love covers a multitude of cracks. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it takes you from one, from the wood to the carpet with, with a little layer Transition it lays strip. down. Yeah, yeah, right. Man, well, that's, that's, um, that's great and also scary because uh, to trust the Holy Spirit requires yielding and surrender, and we don't want to do that. Absolutely. But, but I'm, I'm really thankful for that, that word and that admonition, and um, I, I'm hoping that, that the listeners will know how to apply that within the, the context of their church and in the context of their home and in their, own, in their own heart. So thank you, Alan. And I want to thank you as well for joining us in this week's Postscript. If you have more questions about LFBI's uh, curriculum, or about the show, you can visit lfbi.org and uh, and learn more there. Uh, there's lots of amazing instructors, just like Pastor Allen, that are teaching uh, every single week in the Bible Institute. And so if you have interest in growing in your knowledge of God's Word and in ministry, uh, you want to start there. We want to see you next week, so join us then for another episode of The Postscript. 